Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have heard of the seven wonders, so-called, of the world. Usually, there's actually more than just one list. There's different kinds of lists of the seven wonders, seven natural wonders, seven, seven man-made wonders, all those kinds of things. But usually, the things on those lists are things that are impressive, things that are in some way, for, for some reason, quite astonishing. It could be something man-made, like, like the Great Wall of China, or it could be something natural, like the Grand Canyon, or the Northern Lights, or the Alberta sunsets. Those kinds of things tend to impress us. They tend to astonish us, at least, at least when we see them for the first time. But if you see them all the time, maybe this is not true for all of you, but if you see them all the time, if you live near them, it can be easy to just get used to them. It can be easy to lose your sense of astonishment, your, your sense of wonder at it. You just, I, I remember living in, in, in Chilliwack, and there, of course, the mountains are even closer than here, and, and you, you, you actually kind of get used to it. You can. But that can happen also at, at times with the gospel. Sometimes when we live near the gospel, we can lose our sense of wonder. We can lose our sense of astonishment and amazement at it. And, and perhaps, perhaps, dear young people, dear children, perhaps that danger is especially real when you've grown up with the gospel, hearing the gospel all your life. It's, it's a real danger for everyone, but, but maybe especially when we've been raised in Christian homes and, and especially perhaps in second and third and fourth and fifth generation churches. Could that be why? Could that be why we, we struggle sometimes with evangelism? Could that be why we struggle, why we're not so zealous as we, we maybe should be for holiness, for submission, and for obedience to the Word of God? Could, could that be why there's, in general, so much deadness and worldliness and pride in the Western church? Could, could it be, could it be that the gospel just isn't as astonishing and wonderful to us as it should be? Well, what's the solution? What's the solution? How can the church, how can this church be a living church instead of a dead one? How can, how can we personally be living Christians? Well, we can say, first of all, what the solution is, is not. It's certainly not, congregation. The solution is certainly not to go to church less. The solution is certainly not to worship God less to hear and talk about the gospel less. That's not the solution. But, but neither, neither is the solution to, to change or, or to water down the gospel, to get rid of the hard edges of it, or to make it more attractive with, with man-made inventions. None of that will make us a living church. None of that will make us living Christians. None of that will give us living faith. The solution, congregation, the solution is to see the gospel 
by the grace and by the Spirit of God for the astonishing and amazing wonder that it really is. And this evening, this evening, we hope to do that by looking at a wonder, a wonder that outstrips every other wonder of the world. It's the wonder of God. God made flesh. The wonder of God's incarnation. That is what we hope to see from from God's word, especially the passages we read earlier, Philippians 2 and and Hebrews 2, as we consider the the Bible-based teaching of Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Over the past few weeks, we've been We've been following the Catechism and its explanation of the Apostles' Creed, what we confess every week in church to believe. We've been looking the last few weeks at the names, the titles of the Son of God, God the Son. And we learned about four. Maybe children, it's always good to review. To What did we learn last time? Maybe you remember the, the, different, the four names that we looked at. The first one was Jesus, right? Jesus means the Lord saves. And then the second one was Christ. And what does Christ mean? Anointed. Anointed. And then we looked at the, the two names last or two weeks ago, the only begotten Son. He's the only begotten Son and our Lord. So those, we were really considering the person of God the Son, the person of Jesus Christ there in those weeks. But now we, we turn to his work, the, his work in salvation. And we begin with, with God being made flesh. His incarnation. So our theme with God's help is the astonishing wonder, the astonishing wonder of God made flesh. First of all, we'll see what humility he showed. Secondly, what compassion he has. And thirdly, what a salvation he provides. So in the first place, what humility he showed. A few moments ago, we confessed our faith, congregation. We confessed to believe in Jesus Christ, his or God's only begotten Son, our Lord, who was what? Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Familiar words, words we hear and hopefully we echo in our hearts almost every week. But it's very easy because they're so familiar, it's very easy to say, to hear them without even thinking about them. And, and so it's easy then to miss the wonder of those words. What, what do they actually mean? Well, the, the first part of the answer in question 35 uh, gives us what they mean. It, t- it tells us what they mean. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It means this, that God's eternal Son, who is and continues true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary by the operation of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're confessing. That's what we confessed just a few moments ago. Wow. God, in the person of His Son, became man? Beloved, this is not dry doctrine. This is, or at least it should be, it should be astonishing gospel. What humility, what humility. God showed. And I want to notice, I want you to notice with me two things. Two things about his humility. First of all, how willing, how willing his humility is. Congregation of the Bible speaks, it speaks in different ways about the Son of God becoming man. In John 1, we read that a few weeks ago, it speaks of the word made flesh. 
And when we, we hear that, we, we might think that the incarnation, God becoming man, was, was just something that happened to the Son of God. You know, we don't choose to be born, it just happens, right? And maybe that's what we think of when we hear that he was made flesh. Or it might even raise the question in our minds, was, was he forced? Was God, was God made flesh? Was he conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary apart from or even against his will? Well, this is why we read Philippians 2. Because Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, among many other passages, makes very clear that he wasn't. wasn't, It wasn't apart from or against his will. And so if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to have your Bibles open to Philippians 2. Because I want to read again verses 5 through 8. And as we do so, as we read those verses, I want you to notice something. Notice the focus is not on what happened to Christ. The focus is on what Christ did. Philippians 2, verse 5. Find it here for a moment. He says, Paul says to the Philippians, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Do you see what Paul is emphasizing here? Do you see what he's emphasizing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He's saying the incarnation, God being made flesh, is not something that happened to God, the Son, apart from or against his will. It's something he willed to do. It's something he chose to do. That's astonishing. That's astonishing. Because you you see, we, we don't tend to be like that. Do we? We don't tend to humble ourselves Willingly. Think about Jesus' disciples when he was on earth. Think about how they were always arguing about who was the greatest. Which one of them was the greatest? And aren't we left to ourselves? Aren't we so often like them? Oh, how hard it is. How hard it is to willingly humble ourselves. And that's why Paul knows this. And that's why he has this passage in here. That's why he's telling the Philippians about what Christ did because he's, he's calling the Philippians and he's calling us to be like Christ, to have his mind, to humble ourselves willingly for the sake of others. The point is, his humility, the humility Christ showed by becoming man for man's sake is a willing humility. But it's also It's also, and here's the second thing I want us to notice, an an immeasurable, immeasurable humility. You see, in Christ's conception and birth, it's God, the infinite God, made flesh. The infinite God took on human nature. Paul, in Philippians 2, verse 6, he makes very clear what our catechism teaches That Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, is and continues true and eternal God. He describes Christ in verse 6. He describes Christ as the one being 
continually, unchangingly being in the form of God. That doesn't just mean he's, he looks like God. That's made clear by Paul's next point. He, he says that Christ being in the form of God, what? Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, what Paul is trying to bring across to the Philippians, what he's trying to bring across to us is that, that Christ is equal with God. He is God. But here's Paul's main point with all of that. It's this, that Christ, who is God himself, made himself of no reputation. He made himself nothing. Literally, literally the text says he emptied himself. How? Not by leaving his deity behind. Not by laying his divine nature aside. Not by ceasing to be God. That's impossible. But then how? How did he empty himself? By taking upon himself as God the form of a servant. By himself as God being made in the likeness of men. By himself as God, I'm just following Philippians 2 here, being made or being found in fashion as a man. In other words, by himself as God becoming incarnate, taking him to himself our nature, becoming a real flesh and blood, body and soul, human. By doing that, Christ, God, showed immeasurable humility. The infinite God made himself nothing, of no reputation. Who can measure? Who can measure the humility of Christ? The humility of God himself. The infinite creator becoming a finite creature. The eternal God becoming bound by time. The sovereign king over all becoming a lowly subject. The divine son of God becoming a human baby. The rich became poor. God took on the nature of man. Beloved, it is impossible. It is impossible to measure, to measure the humility God showed in his incarnation, in his being conceived by the Holy Spirit and being born of the Virgin Mary. It's simply impossible to measure. What a wonder that God would so willingly and immeasurably humble himself in this way to be made flesh. What a wonder, because why did he do it? We know the answer. He did it for the salvation of sinners. Sinners like you and me. Proud, self-centered sinners. How astonishing that is. Do you see that with me? Oh, surely then, congregation, surely then he deserves. He deserves our faith. He deserves our love. He deserves our worship. He deserves our time. He deserves our service. He deserves our lives. Everything. God made flesh. What humility he showed. Now here's the question. Are we showing him our thanksgiving? Are we living for him? Also by seeking by seeking to have the same humble mindset he did, also in relation to each other. That's Paul's main purpose in Philippians 2. 
His purpose is to encourage the the Philippian Christians to have the mind of Christ. Christ, as God, was willing for our salvation to humble himself by becoming man, by becoming one of us. Yes, by even becoming, as Paul goes on to say, by becoming, by, by humbling himself even to the death of the cross, by becoming a curse for us. If Christ did that, and how willing, how willing we should be to love one another, to do nothing through strife or vainglory, meaning selfish ambition, but in lowliness of mind to esteem each other better than ourselves, to care for each other's needs. Is that what we're doing, congregation? It's a blessing. It's a gift of God's Spirit when that is the case. But how can we not do that? How can we not do that when Christ showed such humility that he, being in the form of God, being God himself, yet took upon himself the form of a servant and became man? He did that for sinners. He did that for your fellow believers. Surely then we can and should humbly love and serve each other too or not. But there's more to see in God being made flesh. The wonder of it is not only the humility he showed, but, but also, secondly, the compassion. The compassion he has. That's implied, really, in, in Philippians 2, but it's also the, implied in the second part, or hinted at in the second part of the answer to question 35. Why did God become man? Why did he show such willing and immeasurable humility? What motivated himself to to make himself of no reputation by taking on our human nature? Why, why was he willingly conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? This is why. That he might be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. That's God's purpose. That's God's purpose in being made flesh. Doesn't that tell us? Doesn't that tell us what compassion He has? You see, it tells us, for one thing, that God cares. He cares about our misery. The misery that we have brought upon ourselves by our sin. That's what His being made flesh, His his incarnation tells us. It tells us that He cares about our misery. He cares so much that He... As we read in in Hebrews 2, verse 14, he took part of, he shared in the same flesh and blood that we share. He became one of us. He was not ashamed to become our brother and to call us his brothers. He came to dwell among us, not just spiritually as, as the everywhere present God, but as a real flesh and blood human being, not to be served, but to serve, to minister. That's why he was made flesh. He gave up the glory he had with his Father in heaven because he cares. He cares about our misery. Oh, congregation, how we need to grab hold of that. Or rather, how that needs to grab hold of us. Because we are so prone. We are so prone, especially when life is hard. Especially when things are difficult. Especially when life is full of stress and distress. And don't we all have that? Aren't we so prone then to accuse God of not caring? Satan loves to feed that kind of thinking in our hearts. 
Satan loves to promote and encourage hard thoughts of God so that we don't turn to him in our misery, but instead we become bitter and we become angry and we shake our fist at God and we say with the Israelites in the wilderness, why has God brought us here to kill us? That's a temptation. But you see, you see God being made flesh. It urges us, it calls us, it, it tells us don't give in. Don't give in to that temptation. And if you have, then repent of it. Because the very fact that God was made flesh, that he became flesh, that he became one of us, tells us, congregation, it tells us that he's not an uncaring or a merciless God. He's a merciful, compassionate God. I love how Psalter 283 puts it. Good is the Lord and full of kind compassion, most slow to anger, plenteous in love. The coming of God as a little baby into this world congregation, proves just how full of kind compassion he is. It proves he cares. He cares about our misery. He cares so much that he was willing to experience it himself by becoming like us. I've told the story here before, I think. It's worth telling again, though. There was once a boy whose, whose father was on military duty, so he's gone. And this little boy, he missed him. He missed his dad like any little boy would. He missed him a lot. And he would often look at a picture of his dad in, in the frame, in the living room, in the picture. And one day he was in the living room, he was looking at this picture, and his mom was in the kitchen, and, and she heard him crying. So she ran into the living room, and, and the boy, she found, she found him looking at the picture, and she asked, well, what's wrong? And the boy said, I just, want, I just want daddy to come out of the frame. Sometimes, congregation, it can feel to us like God is in a frame. We read about him in the Bible. We read about his love and his care. But it seems so distant. We wish he would come out of the frame. Beloved, this is the good news of the incarnation. He has. He has. He has come out of the frame in his being made flesh. He cares. The point is, he cares about our misery. And that also means that, also means that he understands. He understands our misery. You see, he was made like us, like unto his brethren in all things. Hebrews 2 verse 17 tells us. He had to be. He had to be so that he might be a merciful, a compassionate, and faithful high priest. He knows what life is like. He knows how hard it can be. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows hunger. He knows thirst. He knows fatigue. He knows poverty. He knows temptation. He knows what it's like to be abused. He knows what it's like to be mistreated. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one to death. He knows, yes, he knows even himself the pain of death. Hebrews 2 reminds us of this over and over again. In verse 9, it tells us that Jesus experienced the suffering of death. He tasted death. God tasting death. 
That was the purpose, really, for his becoming man. That was the purpose, verse 14, Hebrews 2, verse 14 says, for his, his taking part, his sharing our flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the, him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subjects to bondage. There's a lot in those verses, but just, just notice here that the purpose of his becoming man was to destroy the devil and to do that through death. That means Jesus even experienced death. He understands our misery. He, God made flesh, fully experienced life in a broken and fallen world. He was made like us in all things. He was in all points, Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us, in all points even tempted like as we are. What a wonder. He understands our misery. His compassion is an understanding, a sympathetic compassion. What encouragement that is. What an encouragement that is as we struggle through life here as God's people. To know that God was made flesh. He understands. Yes, even though he in his human nature has ascended into heaven and he lives there with a glorified body, yet he knows what we're struggling with. What an encouragement that is to go to him in our need, to bring to him our broken hearts, to go to him with our, our struggles, to tell him our sorrows, to, to bring to him our suffering and to ask, to ask for his help. That's what Hebrews 2 verse 18 reminds us of, doesn't it? For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able, he is able to succor or help them that are tempted. God made flesh. Do you see, do you see something of the compassion he has? He cares about our misery. He cares about our misery. He understands our misery. But on top of all that, beloved, his being made flesh means he can save us from our misery. You see, he was made like, like us. Yes, he was made like us in all things except for one. Children, children, do you know what's the one thing that's different about Jesus from yourselves? It's this. He has no sin. He has no sin. He's without sin. He's without actual sin. He's without original sin because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. His human nature, yes, though it's fully human, it didn't inherit the guilt or the pollution of Adam's sin. He was and is without sin. Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us that very specifically. And that means, beloved, that his compassion isn't just a, a sympathetic compassion. It's an almighty compassion. It's an all-powerful compassion. God being made flesh, the Son of God being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, means he doesn't just identify with us. He doesn't just sympathize with us in our misery. It means he is able to save us from our misery. It means he is able to be that true seed of David the promised Savior King whose kingdom would endure forever. It means he's able to save us from the greatest misery of all, from the ultimate cause of all other miseries. He's able to save us from sin because he doesn't have any. So he can satisfy. He can satisfy for the sins of others by offering up himself. Oh, what hope this gives. What reassurance this gives. 
that in Jesus Christ, in God the Son, made flesh, we see the great compassion, the great undeserved love of God. Oh yes, indeed, he is good. He is good and full of kind compassion, almighty compassion for sinners, for rebels, for those who have transgressed and disobeyed his commandments and who are as unable to change themselves, as unable to do anything good as a leopard is unable to change his spots. God made flesh. What an astonishing wonder that is. Telling us what great compassion he has. That he was made flesh in order to save great sinners. But you say, can he really save me? Is his salvation really able to make me perfectly clean? Well, that brings us, that brings us to our third point. As we've looked at the incarnation As we've considered God made flesh, we've seen what humility he showed, we've seen what compassion he has, but notice lastly, notice lastly, and not least, also what a salvation he provides. That's what the answer to question 36 in in the catechism is all about. The question asks this, what profit do you receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity or birth? And the answer is this, that he is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. In other words, the great benefit of God made flesh is salvation. Salvation for all who believe in him. And what a salvation. What a salvation he provides. I just want to point out two things. First of all, it's a gracious salvation. It's a gracious salvation. You see, this is the amazing thing, beloved, that with God being made flesh, he himself provides the salvation we need. He himself becomes the mediator. We couldn't produce a mediator. None of us could because we're all guilty. But he himself becomes a mediator even though we were the guilty ones, even though it was our sins that had separated separated us from God. Congregation, God did not and he does not owe us salvation. He would have had every right to have left us to, himself, left us to ourselves. But he didn't. He didn't. In his sovereign and an amazing and free grace, he decided to save a people. And in his sovereign, amazing, free grace, he decided to become man himself in order to provide that salvation. Listen to what Hebrews 2 verse 17 says again. Wherefore in all things it behooved him It was necessary for him, speaking of Jesus Christ, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to what? To what? To make reconciliation. Reconciliation for the sins of the people. In other words, God, in the person of his Son, had to become fully man because he, he had chosen, he had determined to be our mediator because he had determined to bring peace between himself and us. The message of the incarnation, 
the message of God being made flesh is that our salvation is a gracious salvation. It's God. It's God providing salvation by himself, through himself, in himself. It's God covering our sins, not by looking the other way, but by covering them with his innocence and his perfect holiness in our place. He was made flesh and becoming, becoming, he became our high priest to offer up himself as the Lamb of God without blemish in the place of sinners. The wonder of the incarnation is that it's God providing salvation, a gracious salvation. That should astonish us. That should astonish us. And it's a salvation, beloved. It's a salvation he offers to all. There's no reason. There's no reason for anyone here to fear. To fear that he won't provide it to you. For he offers it to you. He offers it to all. And he himself has said in his word that he will not turn anyone away. Anyone away who comes to him seeking his salvation. It's a gracious salvation. And it's such, it's such a great salvation. You see, this is the wonder. This is the wonder of God made flesh. He wasn't made flesh as a fully grown man. He wasn't made flesh as a teenager. He was made flesh as a baby in the womb. Nine months before he was born. And that means That means that he covers all my sins. Yes, all my actual sins. And even even my original sin, even my sinful nature is covered by his righteousness and holiness. You see, God's becoming a baby just like me, just like you. Sin accepted means he's a mediator for us from the moment of conception. He is not ashamed, Hebrews 2 says. He is not ashamed to call us all who trust in him his brethren, for he is one with them fully, fully and completely. That means the salvation he provides is a full salvation. It covers the the entire life of everyone who believes, every one of his people, every single one who trusts in him. Oh, I say what a comfort. What a comfort that is to know, to know that all my sins are covered by the incarnate God. What a salvation. He provides. It's no wonder. It's no wonder that the author of Hebrews warns us then in chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? God made flesh congregation is an astonishing wonder. That's what I, I hope we've been able to see by the grace of God this evening to see what humility he showed, to see what compassion he has, to see what a salvation he provides. God made flesh is the gospel. It's the gospel of salvation that we need. Oh, let us not become used to it. Let us not become used to it. But let its astonishing wonder fill our hearts with awe and praise and worship. For such a God, 
for such a Savior. Amen.